confirmation hearings underway on Capitol Hill as America's 46th president takes the oath of office. Is the Iran nuclear deal coming back to life? Biden and Netanyahu make their opening moves. We'll go inside Air Adelson, the world's largest personal fleet of private jets. And finally, joining us this week, former U.S. Ambassador to Israel, Dan Shapiro, and Danielle Pletka, Senior Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Get ready. This is Jewish Insider's Limited Liability Podcast. Welcome back to episode two of Jewish Insider's Limited Liability Podcast. I'm Rich Goldberg. And I'm Jared Bernstein. Jared, wow. I am overwhelmed by the reception we got from our podcast launch last week. Uh, All I can say is it's something people wanted at a time where the country feels like it's fallen apart, uh, tearing itself apart at the seams. People want us talking to each other. You know, there are a lot of ways we talk about patriotism, a soldier standing watch at the Capitol, a nurse in an ICU, a protester peacefully standing up for American ideals. But I guess to me, the Limited Liability Podcast is our own form of patriotism. If Rich and I can have a conversation as friends and fellow Americans, then there's hope for the rest of us. As the president told us in his inaugural address, we must end this uncivil war that pits red versus blue. We can do this if we open our souls. And there you have Rich and I opening our souls. That's very, uh, very deep, very deep, JB. You know, I'm I'm the guy who brings a little bit of death to this podcast. It can't all be, you know, your serious foreign policy chops. We got to have a little, a little bit of kishkas here. Well, at least for a couple hours this week, we had some unity in America. It was a great speech. Uh, we'll talk about it. But we have a great show today. Super excited to speak with uh, former ambassador Dan Shapiro, Daniel Pletka from the American Enterprise Institute. These two know D.C. They both served on Capitol Hill. They're foreign policy experts. One is a Democrat. One's a Republican. So it'll be great to get their views as we kick off a brand new administration. But before we get there, let's do a quick rundown of the news that's buzzing this week. Yeah, ain't a political well, first in the rundown is the confirmation hearing of Secretary of State Tony Blinken. He talked about the Iran deal, how he sees it unfolding, and how he sees the future in regional collaboration with Israel and other allies. Rich, what do you make of this as somebody who is pretty critical of the Iran deal when President Obama put it into place all those years ago? Well, let me put this into context. Uh, Obviously, Tony Blinken is somebody who knows Capitol Hill, knows the Senate Foreign Relations Committee very well. He was staff director, knows members of the committee. So we expected him to have an excellent performance. And kudos to him. He did uh, give an excellent performance. Uh, If anybody who watched it, you can go online and, and watch the full segment. We'll have some clips later on. You know, there's good, there's some controversial, there's some let's wait and see. Uh, he made some very concrete statements in support of the U.S. as a relationship. Uh, he was asked very directly at one point, would you consider lifting terrorism sanctions on Iran? These are core sanctions that are originally part of the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal, as it's formally called, uh, that uh, would go away if you went back into the deal. They're now on Iran, the central bank, the energy sector, others tied to their conduct in terrorism, not in nuclear um, activities. 
And he said, yes, I, I think that we should not lift these sanctions. It's not in the U.S. national interest. So that's a very good signal uh, for bipartisan support for their Iran policy going forward uh, if he holds to that sort of commitment. At the same time, we heard him take uh, a line that I think is a little more controversial, uh, at least on the Republican side of the aisle, that on net we're not less safe uh, in the world with Qasem Soleimani, uh, the former head of the IRGC Quds Force, uh, who was taken out by the Trump administration over a year ago, uh, that 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 killing of Soleimani did not leave us on balance less safe uh, or or, or more safe. Uh, So I think uh, on balance, he's going to get through. He's going to get confirmed. There was a lot of support from both sides of the aisle for his for his confirmation. Uh, but also good to see it's you know where he's going as far as Middle East policy. There are a lot of other issues on the table. Obviously, he's going to have to confront China, North Korea, Russia, Venezuela, uh, more uh, beyond that. But uh, I think at least for this nominee, uh, a good start. So, Rich, and uh, you hinted at it a little bit, but I just want to ask you a follow-up question because if there's if there's a critical eye to be cast on this, you're going to cast it, and that's why I love you. Is this a genuine opening for bipartisanship and sort of getting back to the tradition of foreign policy uh, stopping at the water's edge? Or is this a, a five-minute honeymoon period for somebody who many of the senators know personally and are maybe reluctant to uh, take a baseball bat to right out of the gate? I think it's a wait-and-see approach. There's a lot of trepidation based on what the full picture of the team that's coming together on foreign policy. We talked about it a little bit last week. Tony Blinken, Wendy Sherman, Colin Call, the nominee for Undersecretary of Defense uh, for Policy, uh, Avril Haines, at Director of National Intelligence. Uh, we, we've just heard uh, Jewish Insider just reported it uh, just this week that uh, we may see uh, somebody named Rob Malley appointed to be the envoy to Iran. Uh, Somebody, again, served in the Obama administration, one of the key architects of the Iran nuclear deal. So there's still a lot of caution here as where they're going to go. But the early statements uh, from Tony Blinken in his confirmation hearing, I think, are encouraging uh, if, uh, if they hold to that in policy. And and it seems like uh, the Netanyahu government is not taking any chances here, right? Uh, reportedly, they're putting together an official liaison team to talk to the Biden administration, uh, and it's going to be led by Mossad director Yossi Cohen. Well, listen, we're, we're going to have uh, Ambassador Shapiro with us shortly. We, we're definitely going to ask him about this. He wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post just a few weeks ago, which said that expect the Biden administration to have a positive relationship with Israel. They still intend to go back into the Iran deal, but they're going to be willing to talk to Israel about it, uh, get their uh, views. Uh, And in the wake of the Abraham Accords, with a region that's so united right now against Iran, it only makes sense for the incoming administration, the current administration now, uh, to to really take their time, listen to all views, and maybe adapt what they originally thought they were going to do based on realities that they find. And You know, from the Department of Credit, where credit is due, uh, an interesting development at the telltale end of the Trump administration. For many years, Israel was excluded from CENTCOM, which is the U.S. military command that covers the Middle East, and mostly because of politics, really, as it related to uh, Israel's Arab neighbors that had sort of a a non-official peace, but but they couldn't be seen as to be collaborating publicly. And we've seen in recent days that the Defense Department, at least if reports are to be believed, has added Israel to CENTCOM and made the geography of the way the military does business line up with the political realities and geographic realities. 
Well, this is a major strategic move. Uh, it recognizes geopolitical realities, strategic realities, uh, realities on the ground operationally, as far as the military cooperation uh, that's been going on now for the last several years. As we see in the news, Israel, the Israeli Air Force, uh, has sort of had its way uh, with the Iranian proxy forces based in Syria. A lot of news you'll see of strikes inside Syria credited to the Israeli Air Force. That doesn't happen without coordination and deconfliction with the U.S. military. At the same time with the Abraham Accords, we hope that there is some sort of military relationship that can endure uh, very publicly through exercises between Israel and her Arab neighbors with U.S. support. So it makes sense to move Israel into central command, this Middle East-focused unified command of the U.S. military. Uh, European command was a place that sort of adopted them uh, when they couldn't be part uh, of the Arab uh, larger world. promoted U.S.-Israel military relationship for years, uh, all credit to, to UCOM, as they call it, uh, for helping promote that relationship. But now the Biden administration gets to take over and see if they can build on this new integration of Israel into central command. So now that I said something nice about the Trump administration, I can go another three episodes without doing so, right, Rich? That's the that's the rule? Uh, we'll see. I will say good things about the Biden administration every episode, so long as I can say critical things as well. So I think, I think the uh, rules uh, go both ways. That's fine. But uh, listen— Here's something we can do right now, and that is push pause on our political discussions and have an interesting news story. Uh, Amy Spiro uh, joins us, uh, one of Jewish Insider's best. Uh, did a credible inside story this uh, past week uh, on Sheldon Adelson. Obviously, we noted last week the passing of philanthropist, businessman, political donor Sheldon Adelson. He was buried in Israel, Prime Minister Netanyahu, among others, paying their respects. But it's the jet that brought Mr. Adelson to his final resting place that caught the eye of Amy Spiro. She joins us now to talk about her reporting on Adelson's private jet fleet, a fleet he used for good. Amy, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. So people hear private jets. They're thinking Gulf Streams or something, a couple of, you know, rented jets, things, maybe they own one that's nice. But we're talking about a whole fleet of large airliners, right? Uh, A very large fleet, either 16 or 19, depending on different reports. Um, And he had quite a few Gulfstream smaller jets, and he also had a lot of really big. uh, He had two Airbuses that were his first personal use. Those are huge. They can hold hundreds of people. Um, You know, he obviously adapted it to his own needs. Um, And then a bunch of, you know, 767, 747s, again, that can uh, carry hundreds of people. So he had the whole range. So, so Amy, that begs the question, why did he have so many jets, right? You can only be on one at a time. Uh, why a whole fleet? So, yeah, so the, the planes are actually, none of them are, are privately owned by him. They're all owned by mostly by the Sands Corporation and by some of his other corporations. Um, and for the most part, they were used to transport, you know, sort of very uh, high-profile uh, gamblers amid his casinos. It was sort of a... Um, a thing that he pioneered that really helped the business and he would transport these uh high dollar gamblers uh around his many casinos around the world and so that was like their their primary use so i'm thinking like oceans 13 and they they roll out the high roller out onto the tarmac and so that's really what this fleet of jets was for to to bring the high rollers into the casinos and have them obviously spend lots of money uh on gambling and other things yeah that was that was the deal i mean he obviously adelson obviously loved planes and by all accounts he was an aviation enthusiast 
Uh, so I think he really enjoyed having the control of this huge fleet. Amy, any favorite stories that stood out about the fleet uh, in your reporting? Um, yeah, well, I spoke to a few people who had had their own experiences um, on the jets, and, and one of those was Ellie Beer, who's the you know the founder of United Hatsella, and he, you know, as many people know, he flew back uh, last year. Uh, to Israel, where he lives, after he uh, recovered from COVID. He was in hospital in Miami for uh, a whole month. He was in a coma, and he was very ill. And so he was transported back um, on on one of uh, Sheldon Adelson's planes. Um, but what he told me and what didn't make it into the story is that you know, the Adelsons had been offering him, you know, first they offered to fly his wife out to be with him. And she, you know, she thought it, they weren't allowing visitors in the hospital at that time um, because of COVID. And so she said, no, I want to stay here. And then they offered to go pick her up and bring her, you know, from from Israel to meet him in Miami and then fly. And so they really like went above and beyond. I mean, he was even telling me that they stocked the plane with all his favorite foods. And he was like, well, I'm barely going to be able to eat anything. But, you know, he said Miriam in particular was like very hands-on and really, you know, made sure that he had absolutely everything he needed for, for the whole flight. So that was like a really touching story. Thanks, Amy. You can read the full story and many others on jewishinsider.com. We'll cover more news next week, but for now, let's get to our guests. It's Inauguration Week in Washington, from capital chaos to capital celebration within days. President Joe Biden takes office with a pandemic still raging, a Senate divided 50-50, a country tearing itself apart from its politics, and a slew of foreign policy challenges to take on, from China and Russia to Iran and North Korea. Who better to talk this week than two seasoned Washington hands and foreign policy experts, Daniel Pletka, a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, author, teacher, commentator, and former senior professional staff for the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and former U.S. Ambassador to Israel, Dan Shapiro, who also served in the Obama White House, worked in the Senate before that, and is, at least for the moment, a distinguished visiting fellow at the Institute for National Security Studies in Tel Aviv. Dan, Danny, thank you so much for being on the program. It's a pleasure. Great to be with you. Okay, so let's start with an easy one to get the ball rolling. Ambassador Dan, how would you rate President Biden's inaugural address? I give him very high marks. Uh, Look, uh, obviously, it's been an extremely contentious election and post-election period to include the violent insurrection in the Capitol uh, two weeks ago that the president uh, contributed to and uh, other people took to violence. Uh, And uh, uh, a moment like that uh, calls for uh, some attempt to bring uh, the country together. And, you know, anybody can say the words, anybody can say, you know, this is a time when we should be unified, we should be the United States of America. Um, But I think he uh, really conveyed in his uh, inaugural address uh, a depth of commitment to that enterprise, uh, the personal uh, qualities that he brings and really has brought throughout a very long uh, career in Washington, in which he has worked successfully uh, across the aisle. Um, and brought it to uh, connect to the various crises uh, we face, Uh, the crises of our political crisis, uh, our COVID crisis, our economic crisis, our racial justice crisis, the climate crisis. Uh, He really uh, made, I think, a very compelling and very moving uh, uh, pitch uh, or plea, if you will, 
uh, or offer his hand to lead it uh, to, as he said, bring America together, uniting our people, uniting our nation uh, and asking every American to join me in this cause. And, And I think it was effective. Uh, and at least, you know, hearing the first round of commentaries, including from you know quite a number of Republicans, I think it was reasonably well received. Danny, do you think he did enough to be part of the healing process? Uh, is one speech enough to actually be able to heal? And what do you want to see going forward to, as, as Dan said, you know, put this into action, not just words? I, I give I give Joe Biden high marks, uh, or I give his speechwriters high marks uh, for his for his inaugural address. Um, first of all, I liked it much better than I like Donald Trump's, and honestly, I think it it struck a lot of uh, a lot of very you know nice, very welcome tones. You know, there there will be people, and I will be among them, who will say it's very easy to say these things. It's much harder to do these things. You know, let's uh, let's let's see Joe Biden put his money where his mouth is, and that's what you know. That's what the coming days and months and years are are, are going to be about. On the other hand, we've had four years of a president who has didn't do a great job in inspiring people with his words. And when he did inspire people, inspired them, frankly, and in lots of directions that he shouldn't have. So I welcome uh, the return to Washington of somebody who uh, who at least wants to say nice things. Uh, but, uh, you know, my my attitude remains trust, but verify. Well, we saw this week on Capitol Hill confirmation hearings underway. Uh, one in particular of note, Tony Blinken's nomination to be the next secretary of state. Uh, the Iran nuclear deal loomed very large in that hearing from several members of the committee. Danny, first question to you. What does it say to a nominee when you have the outgoing chairman of foreign relations leading off his questioning by really going deep on Iran nuclear deal politics, saying we don't like this deal, we don't want you to go back, several other members harping on it as well. If you're the nominee, you know, does that have an impact on your policy going forward, uh, or is it just a stumbling block to just get through the nomination? I worked for for ten years at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, as you as you both know. In fact, that's where I first met Dan was when he was working for Diane Feinstein, wasn't it, Dan? Correct. Uh, who was one of the members of the committee, and um, you know, we all like like to think that in these nomination hearings, uh, we we really we really uh, were persuasive. I would say that the more likely, uh, or let's say, let's say it this way, the better analogy is that is that these nomination hearings are a lot like getting into Harvard. Um, really, really a hard and unpleasant process, but once you're in, yeah, you forget all about it, forget everything that was said, and really not that difficult. That's that's the problem with the hearing process. Uh, you know, if, if if you're hoping to go forward be uh, confirmed for another position again, then you probably need to be careful. But Tony's reached the top of his of his field, and uh, I'm not quite sure what you go for beyond Secretary of State in the confirmation process. So I think as long as he gets through it, that's what matters to him, not whether Jim Risch or anybody else is giving him a hard time. By the way, just one parenthetical here. Danny was also my boss when I was a lowly intern on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and I would just say I did the best car 
correspondence work of my entire intern class. Um, but <laughs> for uh, for Ambassador Dan, um, Dan, do you think that uh, there's going to be a challenge getting to bipartisan support for the administration's initiatives, or do you think uh, President Biden, as a as a long tenured member of the Senate, who sort of it comes from really a, a different age where Republicans and Democrats would adjourn to an ante room and, and kind of hash out differences or at least come to some kind of an accommodation. Do you think he is, will be able to sort of channel some of that, that old magic um, and really, you know, the Senate as it was as a, as a truly deliberative body and maybe, you know, not what it's become in the last few years? Well, it's true that uh, the Senate that Joe Biden uh, served in was uh, the Senate of uh, Dick Lugar and John Warner and John McCain and Bill Cohen. Uh, lots of uh, Republican senators uh, who he uh, did an enormous amount of work with, much of it in national security. And of course, Danny and I did uh, see a lot of this on the Foreign Relations Committee. In fact, even with uh, with Senator Helms, who was in maybe a slightly different part of the Republican caucus than the names I just mentioned. But uh, it was something that uh, I think was uh, fairly characteristic of the Senate in much of the years that he worked there. And it's probably been uh, less characteristic of the Senate over the last decade uh, and, and maybe you know, the last few years. Uh, and so surely there is no guarantee, especially in a very closely divided Senate. It's going to be 50-50 with a, a, the vice president, Vice President Harris, make, uh, making the tie, breaking the tie. It's obvious that uh, it won't take much for those senators who say, you know, our goal and, you know, this might even be a leadership goal. I hope it's not. But our goal is to essentially block things. Our goal is essentially to prevent uh, the Biden administration from having legislative accomplishments. Uh, then we can use that as a base to you know, conduct the midterm elections and the, and the next presidential election. Uh, if that is the strategy they adopt, uh, given the numbers, and unless there's you know something fairly dramatic that changes in the way the filibuster is conducted, uh, it wouldn't be too hard to be fairly obstructionist. Um, and Danny's also right that one speech, even a very you know well uh, constructed and delivered speech uh, the, this morning, uh, doesn't uh, change uh, politics in Washington overall. But. You know, uh, hope springs eternal. Um, uh, we are facing uh, just a, a, a hellacious set of challenges in the country. Uh, and uh, I do think that uh, uh, responsible leaders uh, who will uh, take note of a new president who at least comes from that world and that style of policymaking and legislating across the aisle and does extend a hand uh, and is willing to listen uh, and surely not agree on everything, but uh, at least offer to uh, make common cause and finding solutions to, you know, these just devastating problems we're having, distributing a vaccine uh, safely and quickly and equitably, uh, getting our economy back on its feet, uh, you know, dealing with our, our own challenges to our own democratic society and democratic institutions and, and challenges of, of racial justice. Uh, I think, uh, you know, there's hope that uh, leaders will rise to that moment. Uh, I do think there are members uh, on both sides of the aisle who want to do that. Uh, I think uh, that, uh, you know, that uh, that isn't enough because, you know, there's always enough for probably to be blocking a uh, blocking group if they if that's what they choose. But I do think the American people are going to look for some kind of results, you know, two years or four years of gridlock under the circumstances that this presidency begins. 
um, is obviously not going to serve the country well. And, uh, you know, voters and, and the public will hold accountable for whoever is responsible for that gridlock. Well, Jared, you shared a little personal anecdote of your own uh, with Danny Pleka. I'll share mine before my next question. Uh, I actually have a great relationship with both of our guests. Uh, Danny has been a longtime mentor for me since I was a House staffer and then a Senate staffer. And for those who didn't already know that in Washington, uh, basically there are a lot of nodding saying that makes sense. <laughs> uh, and for uh, and for Dan Shapiro, uh, I'll never forget uh, when I was in the Senate, I got this call from the State Department. Uh, asking to schedule his confirmation pre-meeting. And I said, uh, well, well, please hold on a second. Let me check with the senator's schedule. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see if uh, when we can do it. He's very busy the next few days, but we'll try to make something work. And the person said, no, 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 we, we don't want the senator. We want you. And that was the only time a nominee requested to meet with me personally and not the senator. And I was very taken what, aback. Once, once it once a staffer, always a staffer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Wait, wait Ambassador, did, were you able to keep a straight face in this meeting? I'm just, I'm just trying to picture. No, I'm just kidding, Rich. I'm <laughs> we just mostly kidding. just talked about the Cubs. <laughs> just to come back to uh, Tony Blinken's nomination hearing this week, uh, we have a clip here. Uh, we'll play in a second. Uh, I think that what struck me the most is in the line of questioning from one of the senators on terrorism sanctions on Iran. It seems to be sort of a sweet spot of bipartisanship that's possible, given the fact that Senator Menendez, the incoming chairman of foreign relations, was the leading sponsor of a bill to increase terrorism sanctions on Iran, even during the nuclear deal back in 2017. Uh, a senator you know, listed all of these major institutions that are subject to sanctions today, same institutions that were supposed to get sanctions relief under the Iran nuclear deal, the central bank, the oil company, others. And the question was, uh, will you... Uh, agree that it's not in our interest to lift these sanctions. Uh, here, let's uh, let's take a listen. Do you believe it is in America's national security interest to lift those terrorism sanctions and to allow billions of dollars to to go once again to funding terrorist activities? I do not, and I think that uh, there is nothing, um, as I see it, uh, inconsistent with making sure that we are doing everything possible, including uh, the toughest possible sanctions. Uh, to uh, deal with uh, Iranian support for terrorism, its own engagement uh, in that, and uh, the, the nuclear agreement. Ambassador, is that wordsmithing on his part? Is he parsing words there? Uh, you know, obviously, I'm very much against the nuclear deal, so my paranoid antennas are up. But I have to say that was a very clear statement and, for me, very welcome statement where I think we can get bipartisanship. Look, I think there is room for bipartisanship there. Obviously, a lot of the uh, tough questioning uh, that uh, Tony Blinken faced was around uh, the stated willingness of the Biden administration to return to the Iran nuclear deal in the context of mutual compliance if Iran, which is very far out of compliance, comes back into compliance with the nuclear restrictions. Uh, and, uh, of course, that is the uh, source of a lot of the tension also or presumed tension that may occur uh, or disagreement anyway between the United States uh, and Israel over this. And some of the senators, I think, were, were reflecting that. Um, but there really is no distinction, I don't think, and not any real partisan difference or really a difference between the United States and Israel 
in uh, recognizing the dangers, the various dangers Iran poses. Certainly, it's pursuit of nuclear weapons. Uh, certainly, it's ballistic missile programs. Certainly, it's regional, the regional mayhem it conducts, including sponsorship of terrorism, the source of a, a lot of those sanctions. And so uh, finding a way uh, to ensure that Iran is held to account and pressures, appropriate pressures, are uh, maintained against Iran for uh, those behaviors uh, and even increased as needed, uh, while also finding a way to restore what the JCPOA did provide, uh, which was time uh, with Iran at a greater distance from a nuclear breakout capability in order to get into a negotiation on a much longer term, much broader, much stronger deal that it does include terrorism and ballistic missiles and others and is stronger in both the inspection and enforcement aspect. That's an area about which I think there could be a lot of bipartisan uh, consensus and also uh, U.S.-Israeli and Gulf and Gulf Arab and European uh, convergence as well. So I think maybe that uh, that exchange you 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 played gives us uh, a sense uh, that uh, while everybody is gearing themselves up for an immediate clash over this question of returning to the JCPOA, actually there's more convergence and more room for both bipartisan and uh, U.S., Israel, Arab, and a European consensus uh, than uh, may initially meet the eye. So that's a perfect segue to our next question for Danny. So zooming out a little bit, we talked a bit about uh, the JCPOA and what that means and and parsing every syllable from Tony Blinken's uh, confirmation hearing. But, you know, there's this artificial, many would say, uh, rubric put around presidential terms of the first hundred days. So when we look uh, at, at Joe Biden's first hundred days, Danny, what do you see as coming out of the first hundred days? And how much do you think uh, Senate Republicans in particular are going to play ball? So you guys know that uh, that I, uh, along with my colleague, uh, Mark Thiessen, uh, who uh, is a Washington Post columnist and a, a scholar at AEI, uh, have our own podcast, uh, which is called I think very appropriately, what the hell is going on? And um, I am, I'm not just doing a, a, an advertising uh, moment, <laughs> although that might serve too. It's okay. Cross advertising is welcome. Excellent. It's no problem. We will bill you later. Yeah, for that. yeah no exactly, exactly. There you go. So, but, but for, but for today, uh, we had John Podesta join us on the podcast to talk about the first hundred days and, um, listening to John was very interesting. You know, this is a guy who, uh, who I think people like me, so, you know, he died in the wool conservatives think of as an old school Democrat, old school, capital D Democrat, you know, he's kind of a Biden Clinton guy. He's not really an Obama Kamala guy. And it was interesting to me how he described the questions of what, what would be mainstream for the first 100 days. So for example, raising the national minimum wage to $15. Okay. Um, Potentially bringing the District of Columbia eventually into the union. Mainstream. I don't see that. Um, and I think that the, the problem with, with the first 100 days is, is, is where you sit. You know, remember, Democrats now control the House, the Senate, and the White House. So the notion that somehow everything is on the Republicans to behave is a little bit ridiculous. 
On the other hand, I think that there are a lot of Republicans like Mitch McConnell who are very eager to get back to what he calls and what is called in the Senate regular order, you know, behaving like a bunch of normal people. And, and you know, when Mark and I talked to John, you know, we talked about that, that the, the necessity of returning. The problem is that when all of these uh, when all of these lovely moments in bipartisan comedy existed, the Democratic Party and to a certain extent as well, the Republican Party were very different. And so I worry that we are going to be working in the first 100 days at very cross purposes, that the idea of what the center is, where we can all just get along and compromise is completely different. If that happens, and if the first 100 days end up being, you know, a a rotating uh, set of very leftist, very quote-unquote progressive priorities, then what we will find is that, A, the Republicans will be angry, and B, the Democrats will be increasingly radicalized. If we see a Senate that is moving towards ending the filibuster, I think that's the end. Um, I think that 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 will be the end of any possibility of bipartisan compromise. I think that will be the end of any prospect for finding a happy medium in a in Biden's America. And I'm very worried about that. Very, very worried. Dan, let me pick up on that with you. Uh, Joe Biden is a creature of the U.S. Senate, right? He understands uh, and and respects the institution. Um, he has to know what 50-50 means for his odds of getting uh, that kind of legislation that Danny's describing through. You also have the compounding uh, event of an impeachment trial uh, that's on the schedule that could delay uh, the legislative calendar considerably. We're already seeing reports on, you know, the president's proposed COVID relief may be getting delayed by it. How does that impact the first hundred days uh, in your view as far as what battles the president picks and how does the impeachment trial play into his message and call for unity? So if I'm not mistaken, the whole concept of the first hundred days goes back to uh, President Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt's uh, first term. And he was another president who took office during a moment of great crisis during the Great Depression. And he wanted to push through major reforms and major programs to address the just uh, extraordinary crisis uh, situation that was causing uh, dramatic suffering across the country. And you know, in a sense, uh, President Biden is, has taken office at a similar moment. Uh, I'm not sure another moment since uh, a president since Roosevelt has taken uh, office at such a moment of crisis. Uh, so it's entirely appropriate uh, to come to the Congress uh, with a very ambitious and very aggressive uh, package to address those crises. You know, the 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 Biden transition was very well prepared. They did a lot of pre-transition work while the election campaign was still going on, to the point that when the transition website went live about a week after the election, there were four kind of preloaded pages of uh, policy content. One was on COVID uh, recovery, one was on economic recovery, one was on racial justice, and one was on climate change. They had really done a lot of pre-planned work on those areas, and those are all areas that are reflected 
uh, in uh, some of the proposals that are already being uh, being brought to the Congress. Some of the things are things that uh, President Biden can do on his own, like uh, today he'll sign to re uh, to to have the United States re-enter the Paris uh, Climate Accords. But obviously, much of that requires legislation. Now, in building out a package of legislation, uh, maybe more than one package, but in building out a legislative agenda that addresses those you know uh, needs, which I think everybody can agree we need to address. Um, it's true. There may be some also very ambitious policy uh, reforms that are uh, included. Uh, what he would say is the build back better. Don't just get back to where we were, but actually fix some underlying inequities that existed even before we found ourselves uh, in these moments of crisis. Uh, and that's a perfectly legitimate thing for a, a president to bring to uh, bring to the Congress. Yes, in a closely divided Congress, and particularly in the Senate, uh, there's undoubtedly going to be give and take and, and need for compromise. I don't see any reason why a president has to uh, negotiate against himself before he even presents his uh, his legislative agenda. And then, you know, the legislative process uh, goes forward and hopefully, hopefully some consensus can be reached. Uh, uh, the, look, the impeachment trial is obviously a complicating factor. Uh, obviously, none of us would have wanted uh, for there to be a need to impeach President Trump for a second time in the last two weeks of his presidency. There was an absolute need and requirement uh, to do so, to hold him accountable for the uh, insurrection that he incited on January 6th, uh, which led to violence and death uh, at the Capitol and could have been far, far worse than it was and was intended to subvert uh, our constitutional process. So the impeachment was a necessity. A post-presidency impeachment trial obviously is a little bit awkward, although it has an important potential uh, consequence if he's convicted, which is the uh, prevention of his being able to run for or hold office again. Uh, so it's really necessary to do this. Uh, you know, I gather that during the uh, de final days of the of the presidency, uh, then President-elect Biden reached out to uh, Senator McConnell, uh, who's now the minority leader, uh, and said, look, uh, that has to take place. Uh, but uh, perhaps because of this moment of crisis we're in and the really important need to deliver relief to our people uh, to get over the pandemic, to get uh, the economy back on its feet, uh, why don't we find a way to have that trial uh, running concurrently with legislative, regular legislative order, which the Senate, under unanimous consent, can make such an agreement to do so. Uh, to me, that would be a responsible way uh, to proceed. Uh, obviously, this is something that only that uh, is going to be negotiated among the senators, uh, and it's a, it is an internal Senate matter because the Senate makes its own rules on those questions. So the good news is we have only one more substantive question for you guys, and then we get to the fun questions. Um, so the last substantive question we want to kind of cover with you guys, uh, you know, BDS, it's been a difficult issue to legislate in Congress. Uh, it, it obviously has some ire within the Democratic caucus. Um, you know, we often talk about a fight for the soul of the Democratic Party. And I think, you know, the, the moderates are winning and, and, and the pro-Israel Democrats are winning. Last week we had uh, Congressman Richie Torres, who is a unabashed progressive but pro-Israel congressman, first-term congressman from, from the Bronx. Um, we wanted to talk, you know, the, the special envoy for anti-Semitism was able to get uh, – Official U.S. policy is use an executive order to help Jewish students fight back against anti-Semitism. Do you see the, the Biden administration carrying this tor torch forward, or do you think that the Biden administration is going to have problems within its own party on the issue of BDS and, and kind of shy away from that? Uh, Danny, why don't you go first, and then uh, we'll, 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 hear, we'll hear what Dan has to say. No, 
I think that Dan should go first. <laughs> this, is, this is this is Dan's party's problem. Okay. The Republican Party is pretty clear on the question of BDS. Uh, okay, uh, I guess we'll go uh, youth before beauty then. Um, so, uh, uh, look, I, I mean, uh, what uh, Joe Biden uh, has uh, said uh, consistently through the campaign and throughout his career, and Tony Blinken emphasized it again uh, in the in his confirmation hearing yesterday, uh, is that uh, there's no place for BDS in uh, uh, his understanding of appropriate U.S. policy, that it unfairly uh, singles out Israel, it unfairly attaches double standards to Israel. Uh, in the past, he has said it uh, often uh, veers into anti-Semitism. I think there's room to debate whether every single person who has uh, ever uh, talked about BDS is anti-Semitic, uh, but uh, that is certainly uh, a characteristic of some uh, some people who do. Uh, but regardless, it's uh, it's something that will be known and stated clearly uh, is uh, uh, opposed as a policy matter uh, and as a as, as a question of right and wrong uh, by the Biden administration. As a non-lawyer, I am actually not expert. I don't consider myself expert on the the fine points of the executive order and how it's applied in educational institutions. Um, I just think it's going to be very clear that that is the standard and that is the policy. It is also clear, and and, and Tony Blinken said this as well, and this has also been uh, repeated in the Democratic platform and in resolutions uh, passed in the Democratic House controlled House of Representatives, uh, that there's a belief uh, in the party that uh, people uh, under the First Amendment should have the right to express their views, uh, even if those views uh, are uh, opposed to the views of the government. And that, of course, means that if someone says they favor BDS, uh, that is going to be very clear that it's in opposition to the views of the Biden administration, but First Amendment uh, protections are, are are very very uh, essential in our in our democracy, uh, and those also need to be protected. That's the balance. Exactly how that uh, shakes out with the executive order and 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 how it's uh, implemented, I, I really don't feel equipped to to get into that level of specificity. But I think at the level of principle, I I, I think I understand pretty clearly where they are. Yeah, I know. And Jared, I mean, I think one of the posts we'll probably be looking for for nominations coming up is Assistant Secretary of Education for Civil Rights. That's the the key office at the Department of Education that handles that executive order's implementation. Uh, there are pending cases uh, from our home state, Dan, uh, University of Illinois. Some students have a complaint in uh, with the department uh, for what they say is anti-Semitism, the manifestation of anti-Israel activity that crosses this line. So I think we'll be paying attention to that, uh, definitely talk about it in future podcasts stay tuned for that but let's switch gears a little bit a little bit more lighthearted. we have a little bit of a lightning round we've started it's a bit of a tradition on the show i don't know if you can call it a tradition on limited liability podcast we're going to ask both of you a little lightning round question uh think fast number one we'll start with dan favorite yiddish <laughs> word or phrase uh it's uh, not going to be very original, but uh, Oigewalt uh, never goes out of style. Danny? Oh, I think the the Yiddish word of that pretty much sums up the 21st century is chutzpah. <laughs> <laughs> and if anybody ever wanted to know, Senator Mark Kirk's favorite phrase was lamchik dreidel. You'll have to look that okay. one up. I'm not going to explain it on air. <laughs> okay. Next, next question in the lightning round. Danny, we'll, we'll start with you. Favorite Jewish food, Ashkenazi or Sephardic? Uh, 
and and favorite Jewish dish, but it could be Ashkenazi or Sephardic. You know, the problem with being a, a Jewish cook is that is that you end up hating a lot of the Jewish food that other people love. <laughs> so, I think. What's your chicken, favorite one to make? How about that? Uh, no, you know, I, I think I think chicken soup chicken soup with masa balls is is really it should be the universal favorite because it cures everything uh well almost everything and it's delicious another way to ask that question would have been if the inaugural speech we heard on unity was a food what food would it be and i think your answer would still work it is chicken soup with matzo balls yes it was chicken dan dan what's your favorite your, your favorite jewish food well, I, I've tweeted about this. I have an obsession with haroset, and uh, we make every uh, Pesach for our Seder uh, at least three kinds of haroset, an Ashkenazi, a Moroccan, uh, and I love all the different uh, Sephardi harosets from all the different parts of the Middle East. They're, they're just far, far better, frankly, than the Ashkenazi haroset and, and much more interesting and flavorful. But we also found a recipe uh, of Guatemalan haroset, and since we adopted uh, two of our daughters from Guatemala, uh, we like to try to find ways of uh, bringing those traditions into our uh, into our Jewish practice, and it's a delicious uh, blend of uh, green apples and cashews and chilies, and it's spicy and sweet, and it's it's absolutely amazing. All right, Rich, you get to ask this okay, one. Okay, okay. The, the the last one, and it's just you know it's in the spirit of unity. If there is a leader, an elected official, some past president, senator, whoever it is, living living or dead, living, living or, or dead. dead. Good good caveat of the opposing political party that you really hold in high esteem, who is it? Dan, we'll start with you. Uh, look, when uh, when John McCain passed away, uh, the uh, funeral uh, that was conducted for him in the National Cathedral, uh, I think, uh, spoke to uh, what he represented uh, for Americans of every background and of both political parties, uh, and including especially people who did serve in the Senate as members or staffers with him. Uh, look, he was the first to say he was not a perfect person, uh, and everybody who ever worked anywhere around him uh, found uh, points of frustration. But he had a real fundamental uh, decency and a fundamental uh, patriotism and a fundamental willingness to see good in others, uh, even when he disagreed with them, uh, that I think was uh, was very admirable. And I think we, we miss him and we miss his uh, style of politics. Danny? Um, I'm going to cheat and I'm going to take two and um, they're both going to be eminently predictable. Uh, I, for me, there, uh, there were two Democratic senators, one of whom I knew and one of whom I didn't know, who embodied a lot of the, the principles and the, the values, and in some cases, just the general, really hilarious nature that I love to see in our government and don't see enough. And that's Scoop Jackson for the first and uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan for the second I just as a tiny, tiny sidebar for you guys, um, for those who who know what senators and Senate staff do, um, senators go on trips, they bring staff with them. In 10 years, I only went on a trip with one member of Congress. It wasn't my boss. It wasn't another Republican member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. I went on one trip and it was with Daniel Patrick Moynihan. And it was absolutely as epic as you can imagine. And that's going to be a whole podcast in and of itself. Uh, 
So, Tales from the road. <laughs> one last question before we let you go, and and I th- I think we know the answer. Um, but Ambassador, if you want to make any news on our, on the Jewish Insider Limited Liability Podcast and make an announcement about any role you might have in the Biden administration, now could be your moment. But I think that we'll just move on and and look look forward with bated breath. I'm having a, I'm having trouble hearing you, Jared. I can't hear a thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, Dandy Podcast Ambassador Dan Shapiro. Thanks so much for being with us. Uh, really enjoyed it, and we hope to see you back again here yeah, soon. It was a pleasure. Really Good luck Thanks, with Danny. the podcast, Jared. That was a great interview. Both guests. Uh, I think that's more of what we needed uh, in the wake of an inauguration speech that was all about unity and at least speaking to one another as Americans. We are going to have differing viewpoints, but conversations like these, I think, do find bipartisan common ground. Indeed, indeed. And that's uh, that's why we're doing it. That's why we get on the podcast. That's why we do all the work. And that's why, you know, we're, we're here every night. So I think right now we're going to our reader mailbag. Is that correct? That is correct. We have listener mailbox uh, full. It's coming in. Please send us yours. We'll give you the email in a moment. We want to read something every week that we get uh, in the inbox. It says this question, uh, thanks for letting us know that Rich is a lieutenant commander in the Navy, Navy Reserve actually, but what is Jared's firefighter rank, this listener asks. Great question. Jared, what is, do you have a firefighter rank? Is that a thing? I do indeed. Uh, my my rank is I am the first assistant chief of the Salt Air Volunteer Fire Company, and I serve as both a firefighter and an emergency medical technician. And uh, you know, it's a, it's a privilege to serve the community. And and you know, as I tell our our members. Uh, we get to help people on what is most assuredly going to be the worst day of their life, and we get to make it a little bit less bad. And so, uh, you know, we, we we take pride in the in the citizens and residents that we serve. Well, a little, little Navy insider uh, scoop for you all. If you're a lieutenant commander, uh, usually in short form, you will just be called commander, even though you're not a full commander. So if you're an assistant chief, I will still call you chief, if that's okay. And, and that, you know, that that is that is the appropriate way. Uh, my, and I appreciate it. And I'll call Call you commander. Well, that's great. Commander. Well, if you want to ask a question and have it answered on the air, send us an email at podcast at jewishinsider.com. Also, send any tips and show ideas. We'd love to hear them. If you like what you heard, tell your friends, tell your family. If you didn't like what you heard, don't tell anybody. Follow us on Twitter at, at JI Podcast and remember to subscribe to the Limit Liability Podcast on your podcast listening medium of choice. Until next time, this is Limited Liability Podcast. Thanks for listening. Got a muscle toe for the game, yeah. But I really do the thing, yeah. Dance, homie, God's only, yeah. God's men, how they know me, yeah. Call me loose in the streets, yeah. But we know, but like peace, yeah. Ain't trying to hurt nobody. We just came in a party, like it's fifty nine ninety nine, yeah. They gon' see us in our prime, yeah. Big house coming down, yeah. From the sky to the crowd, yeah. We gon' sing it out loud, yeah. Black Jewish and I'm proud, yeah. Ain't a political man, yeah. Ain't no political stance, yeah. When the beat knock a jam, yeah, and I got that hopper in hand, yeah. Read cool when the beat moves, sixteens on a sweet tune. Fast forward, then I rerun it, then I get down how we do. Yeah.